Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob, and welcome to Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction, a podcast brought to you by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs and hosted by me and my sidekick, Tammy. Say hi, Tammy. Hi, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Our show provides useful answers to your most asked questions about cheating, betrayal, and addiction. Let's get started. My SAPA husband says that his recovery healing can't be successful if I can't leave the past in the past. He requires we not speak of his addictive behaviors or the results of those behaviors upon me, the betrayed partner. How is our relationship supposed to heal if he won't talk about anything having to do with the addictions or recovery for himself or us? Um, It won't heal. It's not going to heal without a, not just a space to discuss that, but not just what happened, but how you felt, how he felt, what, you know, and I have to say that uh, this is why people go to treatment because you guys get, some couples get so mired. Sometimes someone has their, they get on their rock and they're going to stick on that rock and that's the rock they're going to die on. And I would hate to think that the rock your marriage dies on is your husband's unwillingness to open up to you because the reality of is, I can only imagine like most sex addicts, he's not open about a lot of things. And I'm sure this isn't the only issue where you feel like I wish he would be more honest. I wish he were more available. So one thing that I was, I would ask you to look at your relationship and see, you know, in how many ways do you really want your husband to show up other than being a part of this? Not that this isn't the most important thing, but I have a feeling there's more of his unavailability than this. And then the other question I just want to ask you is who has the power here? I mean, I guess if he can say whatever he wants to do and you just have to accept it, you know, what you asked me, really what I thought what I was asked just now, Tammy, was um, if I, how can I get him to be more willing to talk about this? Like somehow the partner feels responsible for getting him to do something. And I don't think that ever works very well. I think the partner, you have to take care of yourself. If you don't feel comfortable in a marriage where you have no idea what's happened, you don't trust him, you don't feel safe, and he won't talk about it, then that's the marriage that's right for you. But if you're not comfortable with that marriage, then you may have to figure out um, what it's going to take to move him off the dime. And it probably isn't going to be anything you say. It's kind of probably going to be more what you do. What are you, you just tried to hide that thing. You were just, is that gum? What are you, are you no. chewing gum in class, Tammy? Ricola. Hall, oh, okay. Is the hall so monitor is not allowing? Have, no, I'm, otherwise I'm going to have a coughing fit. So I'm going to keep muting, mm. but, mm. Um, but my voice gets tickly. So the Ricolas are going to work. So, so no, I was thinking the same thing. I thought, wow, the, I mean, like, I'm usually full of hope and I usually, but I'm like, well, I don't feel like there's hope if it's like, Yo, you have to be shut down because, you know, for whatever reason, it's like that's in the past. I mean, give me a break. I'm, I bet the feelings are palpable to you. Like, even as you wrote that, I bet you had some feelings of, of that. So that doesn't just, you know, shut down. Dr. Rob has talked before about like, oh, you know, it's in our past. You know, I stopped doing all that three weeks ago. And so, you know, even though it's been over decades, you should be over this. And what's wrong with you? Here's flowers and candy. Let's go on. That's just not how this all works. So. Next question. Why can't some sex addicts perform sexually within the marriage, but have no issues performing with the affair partner, assuming the relationship with the affair partner is long-term relationship? Um, Well, I think if someone's a sex addict, it doesn't matter whether they're having sex with an affair partner or a sex worker or with porn or in those situations, especially with an affair partner. 
we have a big C word that is very important to us as addicts, and the word is control. Um, if that person is a short term or medium term or, you know, as, as much as I feel like going to it term relationship, then I have control. That person can't hurt me or let me down. I don't have much invested there. And just don't forget the affairs give you everything. You know, you get all the fun, the entertainment, the excitement, the sex and partners are you are burdened with everything else. And so you are seen as the difficult one because he's got to deal with all this stuff with you. And, you know, the fair partner is just so light and easy. So Number one, I think that those of us who have these issues need to feel a lot of control in our relationships in general. And when we're at the worst end of our behavior, which is acting out, that's all about control. That's about getting other people to do what we want them to do so we'll feel better about ourselves or something like that. So um, what, else do you, what else do you want to say about this, Tammy, about control? That's where I was going. Well, I, I was thinking, you know, oh, in about a the sex part. Yeah, no, in right. a relationship, there there are expectations and caring, and there's feelings and there's emotions, and with an affair partner, it's you know, it's or sex outside the marriage in whatever form it takes. It's not only control, but it's also unreal. It's like you know, it isn't taking out the garbage, it isn't paying the bills, it isn't any of those things. So, you know, it's it's a very different reality, um, uh, but but the control really, I'm sure, is at the base of it. I, I wanted to add one more thing, which is this concept of intensity over intimacy. You know, sex addicts feel very safe when there's a lot of intensity. I will feel more safe. I mean, hopefully not at this point in my life, but as an active addict, I'd feel, I would feel more safe going to a terrible part of town at three in the morning to find a sex partner. It didn't occur to me I like lose my life or anything bad would happen to me, but for me to be intimate with my partner, to be open, to be honest, to be willing, to be openly sexual, um, that's terrifying. That's where I'm really scared. That's where I'm really vulnerable. And as addicts, we mistake intensity for intimacy. What you want, you're right all along. You know, you want us to be fully connected and to be intimate with you. We aren't. We are with you and we love you and we're connected to you. But when we're acting out, we're not intimate with you because of all these secrets. In fact, one of the things that couples have to deal with, sex addicts in particular, when you're in the healing phase, is that the addict is no longer in control. Now the partner is calling the shots and we do not like that at all, but we've had control because we had the information. When we control the information, where I've been, what I've done, who I've been with, and you don't know that I'm the one who's in charge of what I let you in on and what I don't and how, you know, all of that stuff. So recovery involves a lot of letting go of control. And one of the things that control over sex partners and going to intensity rather than intimacy provides us as sex addicts is it, it is a way to distance ourselves from our own trauma. Whatever our early trauma experiences were, it, it mostly involved love and connection and fear around those things. I know I grew up with love and connection and fear all put together. So when I love you, my spouse, fear also comes up for me and feelings that I don't even understand what they are because they have to do with things that happened to me so long ago, I don't remember. But when I'm with a stranger, no, those feelings come up. I feel perfectly fine. I'm in charge, I'm in control, but with you, I'm vulnerable. And I can, and, and ladies and gentlemen, I will say to you that every sex addict, they being honest, would say it's easier to go out there and have sex with any stranger than it is to be sexual with you because then I have to be vulnerable. Then I have to risk it's not going to work. I'm not going to get it up, you know, whatever it is. And um, we don't like being vulnerable. We don't, we like to care for ourselves on our own. So it, 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 
sex with you guys rubs up against excuse the pun so many so many of our really challenging emotional experiences that we just move away so the next question do mother and men sex addicts turn their spouses into their mother as this is the only way they know how to experience love and once the spouse is the mother they can't sexually function in the relationship i don't think sexual functioning in the relationship is just about mom um I think it's about, as I said, us not knowing how to be intimate. We're not intimate on a whole bunch of ways. So sex is just one form of intimacy. But when you folks who are involved with the sex or love, pardon me, involved with the sex addict, you look at your lives, you know that we're distant from you in, in so many ways. You know, there's so much, so many times you partners say, I, I, I wish you, we were connected or I wish sometimes I feel like you're really distant or we don't, you know, all of that. You feel it for you and we're not really there. So um, let me go back to the question. Do mother mesh men sex addicts turn yeah, their spouse into their mother? Right. So the I don't think that you turn that anyone turns you into anyone. I think that that well that I, I, this is what I think. I think by being emotionally unavailable and lying and keeping serious and all that, we turn our partners into distant, angry, untrusting sometimes nagging. In other words, I hear many often very often from your partners, I became someone I never wanted to be. Now, maybe that reminds us of our mothers. I don't know, but I think that we do sort of, we often turn you through our distancing and all that into people that you never wanted to be. And, you know, whatever bad version of you is out there, I'm sure that mirrors the, it isn't that you're the same as mom, but I get those kinds of feelings that, uh, inside of me that I got with mom. And that's unrelated to sex. The two things are really quite different. There is a great book by Ken Adams called uh, Mother, uh, there's when two, Married, married to, to Mom. mom. Right, and silently and, seduced. Right, and silently seduced, and they're really yeah. both fantastic books on this topic. Yeah, well, and my my perception of a lot of this is that that the partners are the outsider because that bond with mom it it would be a betrayal to the bond with mom if they really fully engaged with you, you know. So so it's very complicated. I really encourage you, Dr. Rob did a. Uh, podcast with Dr. Ken Adams um, on sex, love, and addiction. Listen to that. There's lots more resources out there. Very complicated. There is help. Okay. Is it possible that I do not have much, if any, childhood trauma, but by some very lucky process still ended up with a sex addict as a spouse? Well, I wrote this great book called Pro-Dependence, which really speaks to the fact that I don't think every partner has trauma. I don't think that every partner has terrible histories. I mean, some of you do. And certainly if you end up acting them out with us, I don't think it's because you intend to. I think it's because we, may, we send you into so much trauma that you end up feeling some of what you felt like in your, you know, when you were a younger. But you know, this is what I think. I think we fall in love with whoever we fall in love with for whatever reasons we fall in love with them. And you know, I don't think that, that that necessarily needs to be put into, well, he reminds me of my mother or this from my father, or you know, love is just love is love. But um, uh, how is it do sex and mothers as it can only ever experience a little bit? Is it possible oh, okay. that I do not right. have much of any childhood trauma, right. but by some lucky process still right, right, right. sex addict? I'm still trying to find the question so I can back to them. For some reason, I, are you I an, can't. Are you this. an open? Because like I think there might be an answer. So check the top and see. Because if you're uh, open, yes, I'm in open. Open. Okay. But anyway, that's not one. such a big yeah. deal. At yeah, I have my SH has been sober for a year. Nope, oh, it's, it's from 602. So. I don't have a six. Anyway, I, everything Mike thinks says five. Maybe because anyway. you joined later. So keep going. 
Let's talk about. Why don't you trauma. answer it? Yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I I agree, pro-dependence, but I also agree, you know, not necessarily there's anything you just love a person and that person's broken and there is right. qualified help and healing. And, and both through things, their yeah. brokenness, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. Tammy, mm -hmm. through their brokenness and their challenges, some of our issues will come up. You know, if I have a spouse who's distant and what they say doesn't feel right to me. And, you know, I remember I had parents who were distant, you know, the, the challenges I had in childhood will come up for me in this new relationship. So did you have trauma? No, not necessarily, but you know, do parts of you that are very kind of broken and young and, you know, do they show up when you're so unhappy? Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're, you are, that you are, you grew up with trauma. And this book I wrote called Prodependence is about that because I think codependency and the whole notion of that really says there is something wrong with you for marrying us. There's something wrong with you for staying with us. And I don't think there's anything wrong with you at all. Um, it, it, I mean, some of you may have issues, but that doesn't mean you need to look at them. We, however, drive you crazy. And then you have to go into therapy, whether you like it or not, just to you know get back on solid ground. Okay, so next question. I have been clean for nearly two years, but I am afraid to connect with someone sexually because I do not want to relapse. Please help. You hear this all the time. People that go, oh, I've got X amount of sobriety, which means they haven't had sex or a relationship in years and years and years. So can you speak to that, I'm, please? I, yes, I can. I'm just amazed that I can't read it anywhere. Um, sex. So, and this is drugs and sex, right? So it doesn't it's, say, it says I've been clean for nearly two years. So, so yeah, let, let's proceed with any form of acting. Well, let's out. just, all the questions that we answer are not for everybody in the way they're asked. We try to generalize them as much as possible. Um, so I've worked with a lot of people who say that they were hypersexual. They had a lot of sex and they had a lot of wild sex and they had a lot of fun sex when they were doing drugs and alcohol. And they thought that you know, the drugs and alcohol were an add-on. They just went along with the fun sex. And then they stop drinking and using and they get sober. And all of a sudden they're not that interested in sex or sex isn't that fun or sex isn't. And of course the reason is, is because they didn't drink to top off their sexual experience. They drank to tolerate their sexual experiences and, um, or to disappear into them. And a lot of times when people get sober, they're suddenly faced with their own fears, their own anxieties about intimacy, connection, sexuality, whatever it is. And they don't have drugs and alcohol to soften it. So they avoid it. And there are a number of women in particular that I have worked with who said, you know, I haven't had sex in three years because uh, I just haven't desired it. I haven't wanted it. And part of that says to me that there are some walls that they may have up that weren't taken down when they stopped using. Um, did you think that was it? I think that that's really helpful. And I also, in the chat, um, I put a link. Dr. Rob did the Super Saturday Recovery Summit on In the Rooms um, last month. We have another one this upcoming Saturday, so join us if you can. Um, but he talked about why is you know sex better when I'm when I'm high, and so I think some of that may be helpful too. One of the things that Dr. Rob talks about often on this particular um, uh, webinar, though, is about you know sober dating and how do you do this and how you get a posse and you know I mean I I believe and Dr. Rob has shared too that you know, we really believe that we are supposed to be in a relationship and and so just being sober you know at all costs you know there's ways to date sober there in fact there was um, 
Uh, Ken Page has Intimacy, Sobriety, and Search for Real Love. That was on the same tag on uh, in the rooms. And he talked about sober dating. And there's, you know, a whole website for, you know, doing things in a different way, going deeper, you know, in a, you know, so it's not just swipes. So, so don't give up. You don't have to relapse, but you can date. Okay, next question. Um, I was diagnosed with a love and sex addiction recently and have been in a bumpy recovery, but I've learned so much about myself in the process. I just learned my mother is schizophrenic and has been since I was a child. This explains a lot. How can I resume our relationship without relapsing? I'm doing well so far, and this is all still new. Thank you for everything you do. So do you think this person is talking about renewing the relationship with their mother? Yes. That's what I read. So we don't know the reasons why that relationship broke down, but you know, I, I can just tell you about having a mentally ill mother. That's probably the, you know, my mother was profoundly, well, my, polar, my mom was bipolar, but often psychotic and psychotic is psychotic. It doesn't matter whether you're schizophrenic or you're bipolar. When you start hearing people tell you that you're about to walk to the moon, you know, you probably are in the same boat. And I have to tell you, first of all, there are books on growing up with a mentally ill parent that I highly would recommend you consider. Um, I would suggest, by the way, going to NAMI groups, National Association of the Mentally Ill, or AMI groups, uh, Association for the, for the Mentally Ill, because AMI and NAMI are places where people like us can go talk about what it was like to grow up with a crazy parent. Um, the other part is, that, you know, I, and I don't know what, what your resources are for therapy, but I think that as a young child, I took on some of my mother's pain and I took on some of her confusion and I took on some of her. And I remember in being in therapy and, th and I would get really depressed about whatever. And my therapist said, you know, that doesn't seem like something you would be depressed about, but I think your mother. And then I realized like sometimes she was so depressed that the way I could feel close to her was I would be depressed. So part of growing up with crazy parents, other, unlike Healthy parents can differentiate themselves from you. If you have something confusing happen, they're like, oh no, this, then that. Crazy parents, you know, so I think it takes us a long time to see the, re the reality of ourselves in particular, and then the, the reality of other relationships. I don't know if you guys think about it this way, but as a therapist, I, I understand that when you're, when you're one, two, three, four years old, you don't really see yourself. You know, you don't have, it's kind of like my dog, no offense. My dog doesn't know that he exists. He walks right by a mirror. So let's say in your first year or two, first two years, you don't know you exist. Blah, 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 you don't know what's going on. The way you learn about who you are and, the, and your very existence is by how people respond to you. Oh, uh, when I smile, someone does this. Oh, when I'm crying, someone does that. And slowly in some very primitive way, you form by their reactions, who you are. It's not the entire thing, but it's really early. And so you, I had to go back and say, you know, I got these weird responses. I got all these strange, you know, who, how did I decide, you know, for example, um, I can be very hypervigilant. I can read everybody in the room and see everything that's going on. Is that really who I am? Somebody who's suspicious and look, no, but that's who I grew up to be as a kid because I saw my crazy mom and it's like, is she going to scream or cry or throw, you know, I, I was like, when I, you know, when I, so I think there's a lot of pieces that are tied up inside of us to that very experience that need to be untied by understanding their craziness better. And in the end, you know, I, I had to forgive her because boy, did there's a situation with a mentally ill parent. They absolutely give us the most they can. Absolutely. And whatever they give could never be enough 
for what we need. And that's often what I say about broken parents with kids. It's like, I believe that y'all, you give us everything that you can, everything you want to, everything you believe we need. It's just sometimes it doesn't meet what we need. And that's where the problem is. Sorry about your mom. And I, yeah, I am too. And, uh, and I'm glad you're in recovery. And get support. You're here. Fantastic. But a, a sponsor, you know, a therapist, I mean, get a team around you that can help. And um, just, uh, yeah, and I don't know what the right boundaries are going to be, but setting boundaries about what is going to be healthy interaction for you with support. Like I'm mm. calling my sponsor because I'm going to go talk to my mom. I'm just having a phone call with mom, but I'm going to call. And then as soon as I get done with the phone call with mom, I'm calling my sponsor back. I mean, like it's that kind of thing. Get a plan for how you, you do that because um, yeah, your recovery has got to be primary. Uh, so mm -hmm. glad you're here. Okay, next question. What, what one Go more ahead. thing, Tammy brought up sure. boundaries. So, you know, what she's talking about, um, absolutely. Uh, I, I think more about absolute physical boundaries. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. if I wanted to visit my mom at Thanksgiving, you know, I didn't go stay at her house like I was when I was younger. And I came for Thanksgiving. We had a nice meal. I went back to my hotel. I might see her the next morning for a breakfast, but I controlled the amount of time and the situations so that I could protect myself and still get connected in the way that I felt safe. And so if that helps you at all, I think it is what Cami said. It's about, about healthy boundaries for yourself. Right. Okay. So the next question, thank you so much for hosting the q and I'm recovering porn addict. Today is 39 days sober. Yay. Unfortunately lost my marriage due to my addiction. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm sorry, I, I hear that all the time and it just, it pains me. Our divorce date is tomorrow. Do you have any recommendations for sitting in the feelings or feeling the emotions rather than acting out? Thanks. Well, I think you're going to have it backwards, which is your entire goal is to not act out. And the way to not, not act out on difficult days is to stay really connected and close to people who love you and care about you. You know, it would be okay if you were, and it doesn't have to be something program. It could just, you could be, it would be really good for you on that day, if it's tomorrow, to start the day with a call with a friend and then make sure you check out with somebody else after. I know we're not meeting anywhere, but you know, you can talk to lots of people. And I think the more you set up in advance, people to talk to situations to go to, and we're going to go to this meeting and, you know, and these guys have something online for addicts and you're going to find spaces to work through this. And the other thing I wanted to tell you is that there's so much expectation here, but put the acting out aside. Um, I remember thinking when my mom dies, um, I'm going to have so many feelings. I'm going to, and you know, uh, it took me years to work through all the feelings and it wasn't an immediate I'm crying and I'm weeping. And so sometimes the expectations we have of what's supposed, what we're supposed to feel, and especially how quickly it might take you years to grieve the marriage, you know, or I heard grief in there. Didn't you Tammy? Like, yes. And so, you know, if your dog passes away at, at nine or 15, you still grieve, you know, you still have that attachment. If someone was abusive to you, even if it was a terrible relationship, you live with them long enough, you're going to miss them. Then you're going to blame yourself for a missing and abusive person. The truth is you were attached to them, good or bad. And so I think it'll take a while. I think it's a very addict thing to say, when are the feelings going to come and I'm going to get ready and you know, then they'll be over. And this could be a long time. And it, and it isn't going to come when you expect it. It could be something you see and all of a sudden it reminds you of, and you know, or you run into, anyway, 
be be kind to yourself. I think I already hear ways you're not being kind to yourself. And it is more important that you stay sober than you work toward having any feelings that you think you should be having. Yeah, and I, I was thinking the same thing. It's, you know, I, you can't, uh, you can't go back and rewind that. You can go forward in a very different way. And I was thinking tomorrow, you'll probably make sure you've got um, all your resources in place. Wednesday is you know, like, because it's the day after and you're, oh, I made it through that. So, so like Dr. Rob was talking about, it can, they can come at any time. So, so be aware, have a plan. I would invite you to like go through your calendar and start making plans at least one thing a day, preferably more of like, these are positive things for me, connection points. So for at least the next week, you know, longer is better, you know, have a, have a plan um, because I think that will help um, and you can always add more. You can always, you know, I mean, there's a zillion podcasts and webinars on sex and relationship healing.com. And, and there's a zillion podcasts on grief and relationship mm -hmm. loss. Yes. What you might want to separate is I did this from this is happening because what you did or didn't do is what it is. It's in the past. And that may not be the only reason this person chose to leave. That may have been the straw that broke the camel's back kind of thing. But um, if you can say I did that and maybe it has... But what you're grieving is the loss of the relationship, regardless of how it ended up that way. I think that's a much healthier way to, for you to think about it rather than uh, you're more likely to act out if you sit around and say, well, what did exactly did I do wrong that caused this to end? Okay, I'll say one more thing. There are many stages of grief. And one of them that isn't talked about is remorse. And remorse sounds like when we've had a loss, you know, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to go back, back. My dog is very healthy, by the way. So, But if I said, you know, my dog died, I w if my dog died yesterday, I'd probably be thinking things I know I would. I wish I'd played with him more. I wish I'd thrown that ball more. I remember that time you wanted to, and I just didn't. I stayed inside. You know, I will feel badly about things that I could have done to make the relationship better. And ultimately, there's a part of me that thinks if I'd done all this stuff, maybe he wouldn't have died. So remorse is a big part. And I think you have to allow yourself to feel like I could have done better. But ultimately, first of all, it was not just about you. It's about both of you together and what you're dealing with is grief. Okay, so the next question. I'm an addict in recovery and my partner discovered my infidelity a few months ago. Since then, I have admitted my addiction and been in therapy and recovery. How do I properly show my partner that I am taking appropriate action and truly taking the active role in my healing therapy and recovery? Should I even try and demonstrate this to her in any way? How long do you think, did you say how long it was? It said, it said um, uh, my addict, uh, or my partner discovered my infidelity a few months ago. So this is recent. Okay, Tammy, you want to start with this one? Well, I like, yes, I was. You're going, okay, Tammy, you're pulling things out of the mountains. Right I now. am, I, just, I know. <laughs> this is out of the doghouse. A relationship saving guide for men caught cheating. Yes, but. I'm also, um, if you have not joined the Sex and Porn Addiction 101 work group, that is a practical way of going through the sex addiction book and workbook. And like to get a solid foundation, because we talk all the time to partners and I'm like, if their lips are moving, don't believe it. It's what their actions are. So, so it doesn't matter how much you say, oh, I'm changed. I'm doing this or whatever. It really is showing up day in and day out doing things in a different way so that it's obvious to everyone 
you know, not just us addicts who are going like, oh, I'm trying so hard. It doesn't matter, you know. So your thoughts, Dr. Rob? Well, um, I can tell you, I can tell you some don'ts. Um, That's great. I, I, I can't. Well, I'll just tell you overall that uh, your expectations of this getting better anytime soon are way overblown. Your expectations of being the one who can make this any better are really out of the park. So let's just say a couple of things. Here's some don'ts. You can write this down. Don't apologize. Don't ask for forgiveness. Don't try to explain, oh, well, if I'd only known I was a sex addict, I wouldn't have ever done these. No. Don't say things like, but you know I've always loved you. So you have no defense here. You are completely responsible for your actions. It is not your partner's responsibility, nor should they have to respond to, please forgive me, let's go over this. You know, Because when you say, I'm really, really sorry, please forgive me, what you're basically saying to your spouse is, when is this going to end? <laughs> and, and again, I wrote it out of, the, out of the doghouse. Thank you, Tammy, for marketing that book for me. Unfortunately, a publisher owns it, and I only get 12 cents every time it sells. And that's true. But what Out of the Doghouse is, is a book that I wrote because I've worked with so many men who've cheated and they, you know, men are answer driven. If somebody says there's a problem, I don't want to hear what the problem is like you ladies want. I just want to say, oh, I know how to fix it like that. Y'all know that we are kind of, you know, driven to give the answer as opposed to really listen to the problem. That's most men I know. So when it comes to betrayal, when it comes to what we've done to you, you would think, since we're the answer people, and we like to have the answer as men, that we would know how to make this problem better. And yet I have watched men for 25 years, not, I mean, not a single one, be able to really work through what it took to understand and heal the betrayal with this partner. And so I wrote this book to tell men, look, if you're invested in healing this relationship, it's going to be a rough ride. You're going to have to do a lot of things and say a lot of things that you haven't done in order to help this heal. And all you get to feel about that is grateful that you even have the opportunity to begin to heal with this. Um, the place I would start is, and I'll, let me just say this to you guys. When we work with couples in the beginning, we do couples therapy for one reason, to set boundaries. When are we going to see each other? When are we going to talk about this? When are, you know, how much am I going to tell you? Or when are we going to do disclosure? We do not do any kind of therapy in couples work for a long time, certainly a long time after disclosure, because usually what it is when we're working with the two of you together is it's the addict saying, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. I wish you could forgive me. And the partner saying, you ruined my life. I can, you know, and that's all that really happens in the beginning. Part of the problem is that in life, my primary person to turn to is my married spouse. And I hope your primary person to turn to when there's a problem has always been your married spouse or your partner. But guess what? Your best friend, the one who knows you the best that you live with, who you always turn to for support and love, can no longer be that. Because for the partner, you don't trust them. So why in the world would you, and you're furious at them, so why would you feel that safe going to them with, for support and direction? You wouldn't. And for us addicts, you know, um, we've hurt those people. We've let them down. We can't expect that they're going to turn around and support us. So what we talk about, and the reason we don't do the couples therapy and all of that, is because we want you guys an early part of this process to turn outward for support. Use us. Use the support groups. Um, go to 12-step meetings. Get a good therapist. All of us are going to cheer for your healing. But you can't turn to your spouse and expect it to be any better. 
uh, all you can do is your part. Now, there are a couple of more don'ts I just want to mention. If you want your relationship to get better and you're really trying to be on the healing side, don't lie. Don't hide anything else after disclosure and make sure disclosure is complete and do disclosure. And don't create anything else and, and lie about it. Um, the worst thing you can do is begin the healing process and still have something going on that they, they will find out about. And I just had a client like that. I've been lying for eight years to himself, to his 12-step program, to his partner. He has so much to clean up. It's, uh, it's very painful to watch. Thank you for listening to this episode of Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction. If our words have led you to seek help, please reach out. You can always find us at www.seekingintegrity.com.